Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You swab your cheek or spit into a vial, then send it away to a lab somewhere. Weeks later, you get a report that might tell you where your ancestors came from or if you carry certain genetic risks. Or the report could reveal a long-buried family secret and append your entire sense of identity. In her new book, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Appending Who We Are, journalist Libby Copeland investigates what happens when we embark on a vast social experiment with little understanding of the ramifications. In the book, she explores the culture of genealogy buffs, the science of DNA, and the business of companies like Ancestry and 23andMe, all while tracing the story of one woman, her unusual results, and a relentless methodical drive for answers that becomes a thoroughly modern genetic detective story. Libby Copeland is an award-winning journalist and author. She writes from New York about culture, science, and human behavior, writing for such outlets as The Atlantic, Slate, New York, Smithsonian, New York Times, New Republic, and other um, outlets. She lives in Westchester, New York, with her husband and two children. And Libby Copeland joins us for the hour. Thanks for joining us. Oh, Tom, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Appreciate you uh, taking the time. So you're you're there in or near New York, the, the, the epicenter of the pandemic in the U.S. How, how are things today? You know, it's a, it's a really a strange existence. We've been um, sort of in this state of self-isolation for a few months now, and um, I don't know if it's a good sign, but I've gotten used to it. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> face-to-face interaction is a really rare thing outside of my immediate nuclear family at this point. Uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a strange thing. You, uh, <laughs> I think we do tend to get used to whatever it is we're we're, we're going through at a certain level right it's, it's it yeah bumps I mean, along we're resilient. In, in the background. it's what they always say about children children are resilient you know human beings are resilient and um i mean as much as i'm looking forward to this not being the way it is uh eventually i think it's going to be this way for the foreseeable future so i'm trying to accept um diminished expectations for interaction at this point and diminished expectations for any kind of summer camp um, so, you know, I think we're just hunkering down, uh, with, with, with your kids, right? That, that's, yeah, uh, with uh, our uh, kids. that's right. <laughs> we're getting to know each other better. Yeah. They, uh, do it, doing school in home. Yeah, they're doing it over their computers, which is a strange experience. Um, you know, it's tricky with little children and computers. It's not necessarily the best way to learn. So um, we're trying to adapt it to them, and we're doing our best and, and paying attention most of all to um, exercise and fresh air and, uh, you know, uh, social, emotional stability, yeah. <laughs> all those good things. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure if it's a you know, different experience for everybody, but here in Utah, many areas, uh, you know, not a whole lot of uh, cases, not a high number of cases. You're right next to, you know, a horrible number of cases and yeah. number of deaths. Well, I don't wonder, uh, does that ramp it up for you emotionally? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're not far from New Rochelle, which is an area in Westchester County that was one of the early hotspots. We're very close to New York City, which has obviously um, been enduring terrible fatalities and illnesses. Uh, I live in a small town of about eight or 9,000 people, and there's um, well over 100 cases. Um, so I definitely know people who've been sick. I know of people who've died, uh, you know, friends of friends and family of friends, um, unfortunately, so, yeah, it's been a really difficult time, and we're all just trying to be super careful and hypervigilant all the time, which is difficult to maintain, but we're just doing our best. And we're all trying to be patient, right? You'd, you'd say you'd, you'd, we have to look out to summer, and there might be no summer camp, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, right? Yeah, summer camp's already being canceled here. Yeah. 
So yeah. I think, you know, I think we're all just going to be home for most of it. I don't think there's going to be summer camp here. Yeah. The question is going to be what what school is going to look like in the fall for yeah, us. Right. We don't know that either. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to jump into a, a very interesting article. You were, uh, this was posted in April on Psychology Today. The headline, Genealogy Provides the Strength to Persevere. It's kind of get, it'll get us into genealogy, but related to COVID-19, right? So, Yeah. Yeah, I was really interested. You know, I, when I was writing my book, The Lost Family, I kind of went down the rabbit hole of genealogy and learning about it, learning about the people who've been doing it for a long time, learning about their mindset, doing a little of it myself. Um, and one of the things that I started thinking about when, um, when coronavirus made us all sort of, you know, have to retreat and be very concerned about our health and the health of our, our families, um, was, you know, how we could look to the past for, um, for guidance. And I found that a lot of genealogists know that, uh, that looking to the past can be really strengthening, that understanding that, you know, your grandfather lived through the Spanish flu, for instance, um, can be a source of, of guidance, can, can offer some wisdom, can offer some sense that we've been through this before. Um, you know, what are the lessons that he was able to pass on, for instance? Um, so I, you know, throughout my time, reporting for the book and, you know, especially in, you know, spending time at the Family History Library and talking to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, there's a whole kind of mindset about, you know, what what can our ancestors teach us? And so when this everything happened, I started to ask genealogists, how is family history now informing their sense of the present? And, and I found beautiful, heartening stories. And I just wrote about that for Psychology Day because I thought, this is a time when we all need to hear, um, you know, that we've been through here before and that we're, you know, we're hopefully going to be okay and here's how we're going to be okay. Here's how we're going to get through this. Uh, and genealogists are really smart people. They, they know to look to the past for guidance um, on the present. Uh, you talked to uh, Jason Harrison uh, at the Family History Library there in Salt Lake City. He'd, yeah. He, he told you a poignant story that I guess he and his wife had lost a baby, and then they found out that her, was it her grandmother had also lost yeah. a baby? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I wrote about that in my book, and I, I then I went back to it, and um, I think it actually wound up being uh, taken, cut from the book, and then I, I, but I always had thought about that story he told me, and I put it uh, in this Psychology Today piece, because I found it so moving. Yeah, he... Um, his wife had lost a baby. They learned after that happened, shortly after that, um, that her grandmother had lost a baby and that that family had been so poor they had never been able to afford a headstone. Um, and what he said was that his, for his wife, knowing that this had happened to her own grandmother gave her a kind of a strength and a sense that she could get through this too. And it gave her... Um, also a determination to want to raise money to um, put a headstone um, down for that for that long ago lost baby. And so um, he told me in some detail about the lengths that they went to to figure out where the baby was buried. Because of course, if somebody is buried without a headstone, how do you know where they are? Um, and so what they did was they had uh, an old photograph. And they somehow were able to figure out, based on the old photograph and sort of superimposing it over the present day um, area, you know, com- by by comparison, they were able to backtrack and figure out where the baby had been buried, and then they were able to purchase a headstone and put it down. And that was um, a very healing thing, he said, for for him and his wife. And this, this, I mean, this, this does 
this does matter greatly, doesn't it, to, to, to know that we, speaking collectively as a people or as a family, we've been through things like this before and we, we survived. Yeah, we need to know that. And I think, you know, I think history can be somewhat abstract, right? You think about the Spanish flu, and if you are not thinking about it in terms of any personal connection to you, it just seems like a terrible thing that happened 100 years ago. If you have a family connection to that or to one of the other pandemics that has taken place um, or, you know, to somebody in the family who had polio or, um, you know, another sort of awful disease that, that ravaged the nation, um, you can um, – I think that that makes history personal in a way that just looking at the numbers cannot. Um, and I think making the past personal, making history personal, um, makes it relevant to us and allows us to uh, draw strength from it and, and uh, you know, receive guidance from it, mm-hmm. receive wisdom. What, what, one of the passages here, again, that really struck me, uh, you, say, you say a family friend, Marcia Roberts Gregorio, She'd been rereading a journal her father, who's now passed on, kept during World War II. And uh, he was open in this journal. He, he, he said, I'm afraid. He, he admitted he was afraid. Yeah. yeah. He talked about being near the front in Europe during World War II. He talked about his fear. He was honest about it. And he said, but you know what? We're all in this together, me and my brothers in arms. You know, if one falls, all fall. And so we, we depend on each other. And I thought, man, like she, she, she was reading to me or writing to me, um, quoting from his diary, and I thought, that's exactly where we are right now. You know, we all have to protect each other. My decision to stay in the house and wear a mask is not just an act of protection for myself. It's uh, communal protection. I'm, I'm protecting everyone else by doing that. So it's, um, you know, it's an act of, of civic-mindedness. Uh, and, you know, we all are in this together, just as it, just as it was for, um, you know, my friend's father during World War II. And it, I think it's important, we, we see this generation as the really, uh, you know, taciturn. <laughs> my, yeah. my father fought in World War II, and he, it was quite a while before he started telling stories. Um, but, but, it, but it's uh, know, heartening or encouraging to, to uh, imagine for her to read that line. Okay, my... My grandfather was afraid, but he, he went for it anyway. He went for it anyway. And what a gift that he gave her and her siblings um, his journal, that he kept yeah. that journal, which apparently she said was against the rules. He wasn't supposed to be keeping a journal, but he was a man who kept a diary on, and he kept a diary during the war. Yeah. And to be able to Xerox that and pass it out to his children um, was just, uh, yeah, a wonderful gift. Uh, n- maybe because he's not supposed to give away secrets or positions or... Stuff like that. I'm not sure why they weren't supposed to keep it. Too. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah. I didn't delve into it, but yeah. um, that that that's what I assumed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just one more thing from this article, and then we get into the book. Um, you uh, talked to a genealogist, um, Jennifer Mendelson. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, I I didn't look this up. Uh, you say she's into resistance genealogy. Yeah, she started a social um, media movement on Twitter called Resistance Genealogy, um, and it's um, looking at our immigrant past, so looking at the um, immigrant past of many Americans. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then she, uh, she told a story about uh, an ancestor of hers who survived the Holocaust, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think it, it was uh, connected to her family. Um, and she talks about, um, I think it was her, her husband's family, and she talks about, um, you know, the 
uh, resilience, you know, the, the way that ordinary people find themselves um, forced by necessity to go from being a seamstress to, um, uh, you know, being somebody who is evading authorities and hiding and um, making do and, you know, feeding themselves however they can until the war is over. Um, and she said that knowing that those stories gave her the sense that we all could make it through um, even though we don't feel ourselves to be anything more than ordinary people. In other words, knowing that ordinary people with no particular, um, you know, you wouldn't predict necessarily that they would have extraordinary skills, but that they managed to survive means that we're all called upon to be, um, you know, a little bit um, extra resilient, a little bit extra brave, um, extra strong, uh, you know, thoughtful and creative. And, and um, she found that strengthening to know that, um, that these were not superheroes who survived the Holocaust. Uh, these were, you know, folks like us. Yeah, I love her quote. You quote her in, in your article. Um, uh, she says, I always remind myself that before she was selling things on the black market to survive World War II, after losing her entire family, my husband's grandmother was a 20-something seamstress, not a soldier or rebel or survivalist, an ordinary seamstress from a small town. She just rose to the challenge, and I have to hope we will too. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I found writing that article really, really helpful personally, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you look at a terrible... Um, a terrible event like this pandemic in isolation out of context, it, it's frightening. And, you know, it's frightening no matter what. But, um, but if you can look at it through the long sweep of history, it, it doesn't feel so, um, so exceptional. It feels like, oh, okay, human beings have been here before. We've been through this before, um, and, and we're going to get through it. Yeah. So have, uh, talking to people like Jennifer Mendelson, has that helped you <laughs> with dealing with this? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it really has. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say, genealogists have taught me a lot over the last few years um, writing my book. Um, but yeah, I, I, ha- I, I, yeah, whenever I um, talk to a wise genealogist, I walk away a little bit wiser myself. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll jump into the book. It's a fascinating book, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. Um, and uh, just as a teaser, uh, you, uh, you quote, um, I'll, I'll pull up this uh, right here, if I can find this. Uh, the late historian Melvin Kranzberg, you say, wrote, The technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. I would have I would have guessed the next uh, phrase in that sentence was it is neutral, but it's not neutral, and we'll get into the unintended consequences of of DNA testing that you get into in the book. We'll have that following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas in action. Online at utahhumanities.org. This week on Radio Lab. Very funny. What a funny idea. Mr. Google thought that right in front of the homes, they should build a bus stop. The bus stop. To nowhere. There's no bus coming. No bus? Never. The story of how one nursing home used a bench and a lie to save their patients. I'm Jad Abumrad. Join me. Saturdays at noon here on Utah Public Radio. 
You may have heard Utah Public Radio and Bridgerland Audubon Society are presenting the Grown Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens. This art contest is celebrating that beauty. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for you to download. For all of the details, go to upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with journalist Libby Copeland. Her new book is The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. In it, she investigates what happens when we embark on a vast social experiment with little understanding of the ramifications. She explores the culture of genealogy buffs, the science of DNA, the business of companies like Ancestry and 23andMe, all while tracing the story of one woman, her unusual results, and a relentless methodical drive for answers that becomes a thoroughly modern genetic detective story. That is kind of the central uh, focus uh, or story in the book. Um, so uh, how did you get into this uh, whole area? Was it uh, reporting on the DNA side, or did you get interested in genealogy uh, otherwise? How did you get into this? Yeah, so I've been a journalist for um, a little over 20 years, and I started to specialize in um, science and culture and technology and sort of the intersection of of those things, you know, human behavior, what makes us um, behave the way we do, and how does technology push our behavior, um, and I um, was interested in writing about the um, sort of revelations that can be contained in a um, in a spit kit vial. So if you spit into a vial through Ancestry or 23andMe or MyHeritage or one of the um, big companies, you know, you, you may get um, something unexpected. And I was really interested in sort of how that plays out in people's lives. And so I wrote, um, I started looking into the topic, and I wrote a piece for the Washington Post, um, about a particular tale of a woman named Alice, which was fascinating. Um, and um, at the bottom of the piece, um, I put a little email address, you know, write me if you want to contribute, if you've had an interesting DNA testing story. This was back in 2017, and um, it, the databases weren't anywhere big as they are now. In other words, not as many people had tested. Many more people have tested now. But even back then in 2017, I was absolutely bowled over by the response I got. The story went viral, and then I started getting, like, emails by the hundreds within, a, you know, days I had. I was completely underwater with emails from people across the country who wanted to share how DNA testing had profoundly changed their lives. And these stories were so moving. They were um, stories of heartbreak. They were sometimes heartwarming. They had um, happy endings and sad endings. And I shouldn't even say they had endings because um, these are the kinds of um, revelations and experiences that go on for your entire life. So um, in the wake of that, I was reading them and I thought, goodness, this is like not the sort of topic that you can treat in a newspaper article or in five newspaper articles. This is really deserves to be a book. Um, and I wanted to take the story of Alice, which I had told in the newspaper, and tell it much more fully at book length. I wanted to um, fly to Washington State, which is where she lives, and crawl around inside her amazing brain. I wanted to... Um, go back 100 years because the beginnings of her genetic mystery start 100 years ago. Um, I wanted to do that, that historical research, and I wanted to tell some of the stories of the people who'd reached out to me and really explore some of the psychological and bioethical um, and you know, emotional issues surrounding 
how we're really reshaping the, the American family um, profoundly in this moment. So that's sort of how the book came to be. Mm. But by the way, just, just parenthetically, uh, if you get into genealogy and even the, the DNA side of it, um, roads are going to lead to Utah, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That's um, Utah is perhaps the most important state um, when you think about DNA testing and genealogy. And, of course, DNA testing and genealogy are intricately bound together. Um, you know, you have, you have the church there, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You have the um, Family Search, which runs the Family History Library, um, which I got to visit uh, and fell down a rabbit hole and, like, emerged hours later saying, oh my gosh, like I, I just fell down a genealogy rabbit hole and found out all this stuff about my family. I can't believe the resources that are here. Um, so you have that. You have Ancestry, of course, is headquartered there. My Heritage, which is another big DNA testing company, has a presence um, in Utah. Um, and, um, and Utah has also played an important role in the emergence of forensic genealogy, which is solving those cold cases, which we've all been hearing so much about um, since the Golden State Killer happened a couple of years ago. So Utah is like the state that you want to be in if you want to write about home DNA testing for ancestry purposes. Mm-hmm. And I was able to not only visit the Family History Library, but also tour um, Ancestry's headquarters, which, was, which, which are in um, Lehigh. Um, and that was a really cool experience, very large um, headquarters, very modern, gleaming headquarters that were built not that long ago. So, um, you know, I felt like Utah was kind of a pivotal state, um, and the role that the church has played and that, you know, ancestry has played, um, all of these things are a big part of my book and a big part of the history of how we, how we got here. And uh, you point out, <clears throat> this is not that long ago, we're, we're at the 20th anniversary, right? The, the, these, the first yeah. of these companies appeared in, in 2000. Yeah, exactly. The very first company is a company called Family Tree DNA. They're down in Houston. Um, they're one of the major four companies. So there's Ancestry, 23andMe, MyHeritage, and Family Tree DNA. Um, and Family Tree DNA was founded by a genealogist, um, and he sent out his first test kits um, in April of 2000. So it's exactly 20 years. And if you think about that, I mean, it took um, quite some time for it to take off because in the beginning the results were not like they were are now. The the kind of DNA they were looking at was was different um, than the autosomal DNA, which is the kind of DNA that you are looking at when you take a, a test these days, um, generally speaking. Um, and so, you know, it's not even till 2013 that you see the sale of about a million test kits for. Um, for autosomal DNA, and yet at 20, from 2013 on, this thing just completely takes off, and now we're somewhere between 30 and 35 million people tested, which is enormous uh, population of people spread across these databases, um, and um, the vast majority of those people are in the United States. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at a, a real kind of fascinating repository of American DNA and all the stories that are contained in that DNA. Uh, so uh, the vast majority are in the U.S. This this hasn't taken off to, to the same extent worldwide, right? So DNA testing is really an American phenomenon um, in many ways. Um, some of that has to do with you know where the main companies are located. Some of that has to do with American interests. You know, we uh, most of us come from someplace else. 
Um, a lot of Americans, particularly Americans of European descent, who um, may have come over quite some time ago, or families may have come over quite some time ago, many of them feel disconnected from their roots, like they are not um, quite sure whether their grandfather really was Italian or Greek, right? And so they um, they tend to be seeking that that um, you know those stories and that information, and so they will participate in DNA testing um, basically to get those those ethnicity pie charts that you hear about, where you know it shows you that you're you're one quarter Italian or or you're one quarter Greek, um, and um, and they're and they're seeking information. So, and if you talk to Europeans, I mean, there is some um, interest in England and Australia and Canada, but um, a lot of folks in Europe, in particular, they sort of have a sense they might have their family might have lived in that area for a long time. They sort of have a sense where they're from, mm-hmm. and so they're not as curious to find out more. They often um, know their genealogy is going pretty far back. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but I guess a nation of immigrants, it, it would be more important to us, maybe. Right, like you know, melting pot nation. Mm-hmm. So, so lots of people are wondering, okay, so where did my particular piece of the pot come from? Right. Um, and, and um, you know, we've moved through periods where assimilation was very much the norm, and we're now in an, a time where, um, where there's a lot of curiosity about what, what, you know, what was my family's culture before all that assimilation took place. And, and that assimilation sometimes means that some of those bits of culture and language and stories um, and traditions were not passed down, or they got kind of watered down and forgotten over time. And so now... Um, we're very much in a period of time where people are seeking information about their families and really about themselves. I mean, this is all um, a quest for better understanding ourselves when you get back down, right down to it. Yeah, it isn't, for, for a lot of people, it's not neutral, right? It's not just, oh, that's interesting. It's, it's bound up in our sense of identity, who we are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, and that can be incredibly enriching. Um, you know, the vast majority of people who test the information that they find out is just sort of an adjunct to their family history research, and it, it, it broadens and, 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 and enriches them and their understanding. Um, and that's, uh, that's, like a, that's a big facet of those who test. Um, what I was interested in exploring was the significant minority of people who test and they discover something sort of immediate and unusual or surprising about their families or, you know, perhaps about their own origin stories. Perhaps um, one parent isn't genetically related to them. Um, Perhaps they were donor-conceived. Perhaps they are an adoptee who was able to find their birth families through DNA. Perhaps they we're not told they were adopted, and they discover through DNA testing. So there are all sorts of different stories about people who either discover something they weren't looking for or they set out with a question, and DNA allows them to get an answer to that question that there's no way they would have been able to get it any other way. So I was interested in looking at, you know, when you're able to get this information, whether or not you set out looking for it, um, and that can play out different ways depending on whether you were prepared for um, for something like this. Um, when you're able to get that information, how does that alter your life? And, um, you know, how does that alter how you think about family and um, truth and the past? And the, the people that I interviewed, you know, were really wrestling with these questions um, about, you know, about perhaps in many cases not having been told the truth, 
about the identity of their father, for instance, and then being in maybe their 50s and having to go back and think through their childhoods and um, process things all over again, maybe ask questions of their parents if their parents are still alive, but maybe have unanswered questions when their parents are not alive, which can be really painful. Um, rethink their relationships to siblings who perhaps they um, are, you know, now half siblings to, and then also discover new siblings um, that they never knew about, and think about what kinds of relationships they want to have with those people. It's a, it's a it's an incredibly profound um, change that literally millions of Americans are going through as a result of home DNA testing right now. And as you say, this could be described as a vast social experiment. We've been on the last twenty years, you know, not intended. Really, but uh, right. but uh, really, a, a lot of things come up. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Libby Copeland, uh, journalist. Her uh, latest book is "The Lost Family: How DNA Testing Is Upending uh, Who We Are." Uh, you can join this conversation if you'd like by by email. A question uh, to Libby Copeland: uh, upraccess at gmail dot com is our email. Upraccess at gmail dot com, or you could call us 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And uh, Libby Copeland is joining us from New York. Um, so, Libby Copeland, I, I want to get into some, maybe some specific stories, uh, starting with the, uh, the just the fascinating sort of central story uh, in in the book. Uh, I don't know how much of this you want to <laughs> give away to drive people to the book, of course. Um, but uh, the, this uh, uh, woman named Alice Collins is it Pleebuck? Yeah, Pleebuck. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's a fascinating story. So Alice lives out in Washington State. <laughs> She tested back in 2012. That's when um, I, I think of this as sort of the dawn of the era of, of consumer genomics in many ways, because it is when ancestry, which would eventually become you know, the biggest um, business in the space of DNA testing in terms of kits sold, um, it's when ancestry unveiled its, its first autosomal DNA test in 2012. And um, it was so long ago, and yet it was only eight years ago. Um, so it was so long ago that the test was in beta when she took it. The database was very, very small. Um, and when the reason I mention the size of a database is that, um, you know, what you're looking at when you get your results are two things. Um, you spit into a vial for 99 bucks. You send it off to Ancestry or another company. And what you get back is um, two key things. One is an, ancest- like an ethnicity estimate. It talks about your genetic ancestry, one quarter this, one quarter that. And the other is a list of DNA relatives. Um, and those people are people with whom you share overlapping genetic segments. So if your mother had tested, she would show up as your mother. If your first cousin had tested, that person would show up as a, as a first cousin. Um, but this was so long ago that Alice was very unlikely to find any close cousins because there just simply weren't that many people in the database. Um, what she did find was very surprising in her ethnicity estimate. She had gone into it knowing her genealogy. She was a serious researcher who'd done a lot of research on her own family history, and she knew that she was Irish-American, almost completely Irish-American with a little British-Scottish mixed in. Um, and she fully expected to get that result back, and instead what she got back was this, was this confusing pie chart um, that was split down the middle, half Irish, British Isles, and the other half... Um, a confusing amalgam of ethnicities that eventually added up to Ashkenazi Jewish, so Central and Eastern European Jews. And this didn't make any sense, and she knew that Ancestry's test was in in beta testing, so it was still sort of um, uh, not quite ready for prime time completely. 
And she just assumed that their science wasn't up to the task and that they had made a mistake. Uh, and she even wrote them and said, hey, you guys, you've made a mistake. I know my genealogy, and uh, you must have you know, m- messed this up somehow. Uh, and it took her a very long time, two and a half years of serious full-time work, to um, figure out the truth, um, which was that Ancestry had not made a mistake. And um, part of what made it so difficult was that the databases at that time were so small. Um, Now, a lot of people, if they get an Ancestry, uh, uh, an estimate of ethnicity that is um, half not what they expected, the explanation is something that's known in this world as an NPE which stands for non-paternity event or not parent expected. And it means that one of your parents or both your parents, typically your father, is not genetically related to you. That's the most common way in which an unexpected DNA result can play out, um, and it affects a lot of, a lot of people. Um, but this was not the explanation in Alice's case, and neither were the other theories that she played out that seemed kind of likely that other people have said was true in their cases. And so to understand her truth, she had to go back 100 years. Um, And that's the story that I tell in the book, which allowed me to do quite a bit of historical research and also research into science and her family. Um, It's a fascinating story. It's a kind of a mystery story. Uh, And along the way, she dismisses theory after theory, this and that. And those um, theories that she dismisses allow me to take a look at other cases where those particular theories were the explanation. So I tell the story of what it looks like to experience an NPE from a number of people's accounts. Um, I tell other stories of what it's like to discover that you are adopted through a DNA test or to discover that your family um, hid a significant part of its genetic ancestry from you um, in a bid to protect you from um, racial discrimination. So there are incredible stories of these sorts of things happening to Americans right now. And Alice's Tale is the vehicle that um, I kind of build the book around, but then there's many other stories woven throughout. Uh, And so in in Alice's case, uh, and this is uh, not that unusual, I, I wouldn't think, uh, she finds out that, uh, that her father, Jim, who's so, so proud of his Irish heritage, might not be Irish, right? Um, yeah. yeah. In fact, she's saying Danny Boy in his wake, right? It was very, yeah. He, he, yeah. Was, he was very proud of this. Yeah, I mean, and for Alice, it's an interesting thing because her father is no longer alive, right? And she really struggles with, um, you know, would he have been... Um, glad to know the truth, and of course, the explanation for this truth is something I'll leave to the side. But you know, you you understand it when you read the book. It's at the end of the book. It's kind of the like, wow, because um, it's a very surprising sort of explanation. Um, but you know, the, there are many um, people to whom this is happening right now, where they are discovering that despite having identified as being one thing all their lives, they are in fact not that thing uh, as far as DNA is concerned. Or um, despite having thought of the person as their sibling, this person is not their genetic sibling. And so we have these, um, these narratives, these sacred truths, these things that are very important to us. And people are struggling with, okay, so now what is that person to me? I still love them. I still consider them my sister. How much does this DNA matter? Um, I still think of myself as Irish. How much does this new information that I'm also Ashkenazi Jewish matter? And each person makes that call for themselves. And what's interesting is that, you know, um, we're not binary about it. We're not like either or DNA trumps all. Uh, we're not like, oh, experience trumps all. We're not, we're not 
as I found interviewing people, you know, people resolve these conundrums with incredible nuance and emotional intelligence. Um, and I think that they can kind of form a guide to other people. I think that we need to hear the, the voices of these people because I think as the databases get bigger, this kind of experience is going to happen to more people. I, at this point, it's happened to millions of Americans who've been impacted by a revelation in a DNA test, um, either because they tested themselves or because the revelation impacted them because their brother tested and they discovered something like their father's not their genetic dad. Um, and so I think for those millions of Americans to be able to inform the experiences of the many more millions of Americans who are on their way to making those discoveries, even if they never test, these, these um, revelations may come their way, and I can talk about that. But um, the point is that we're all kind of implicated at this point um, by DNA testing, whether or not you test, if there's a genetic secret in your family, it's going to come out. And so this is the moment of, of reckoning and the moment of having to reconcile ourselves to that. And so I think the voices of the people in the lost family are hopefully a guide to um, how we can all sort of get through this moment and the coming decades together. You say that uh, the 2020s will likely be the era of no more family secrets. Yeah, and that's because even if you never choose to test or I never choose to test, we're all drawn in by the fact that somebody else does. Um, with, the, with the databases, at least 30 million now, perhaps as much as 35 million. Um, what that means is that, um, for instance, if uh, a brother of mine uh, had a child 40, 50 years ago and didn't know it, um, if he never chooses to test, he can still um, be, be sort of discovered because I choose to test or if I don't choose to test uh, another genetic relative, or first cousin tests. So if he had a genetic child out there who was looking for him, um, that child could spit into the database, uh, spit into Ancestry, for instance, and um, find, say, the first cousin that I'm talking about who's in there, and use that along with the bounty of information that's online, on Facebook, on other social media, to figure out some semblance of who the likely fa- their likely father would be, i.e., in this theoretical example, which I should stress is not real, in this theoretical example, my brother, right? So the point is that if there's a family secret in, in your family, a genetic secret about, say, somebody's origins, perhaps your child was donor-conceived and you never told them, um, this is the moment when you want to start thinking about um, how to have that difficult conversation before they spin into a tube, because that time is coming. Um, and even if they don't test, perhaps another one of your children will test and suddenly discover that, that you know, something isn't quite right, um, and things can unravel quite quickly from there. Mm. Well, uh, the people you talk to, uh, you know, no, you weren't able to talk to everybody in America or everybody who had to test, but, uh, you know, some secrets, some information that maybe... <laughs> would prefer not to know, now they know. Were people, by and large, glad they took the test or, or sorry they took the test? That's such a great question. Um, over and over I found that the people who were testing uh, and who were looking for something important about themselves, so something about their own genetic origins, the identity, say, of their genetic parents, um, even when they discovered something surprising and even when the... Um, story behind that news was really painful, 
they were ultimately glad to know. And that didn't mean that they were jumping up and down, um, you know, doing a happy dance. I mean, there's a great deal of pain and there can be some trauma attached to this. Um, but as one woman puts it, you know, I would rather have a, um, you know, a difficult truth than an easy lie. So, you know, people want to understand where they come from. And, you know, even when that means learning that perhaps your dad had an affair or perhaps, um, you know, <laughs> your sibling's not related to you or perhaps, you know, something even really quite awful happened, um, they are, uh, they're glad to be able to incorporate that news into their understanding of, of their own background, and it answers a lot of questions. People often, they may not even have realized that they had questions, but um, looking back, it explains things that they never really understood. They'll often be prompted to look back and sort of edit their own childhoods with new annotations. Ah, oh, that thing that finally makes sense. They'll wake up from... Um, from sleeping with um, memories having reemerged that they had forgotten about from their childhood, and they're now able to put them in a new context. Um, so it's an incredible process for for them, and um, uh, you know it can go on for quite some time. On the other hand, the people who um, who are the ones who are sought, um, they're not always they're not always happy to be found. They're not always glad that that, that anyone's been into a vial. Um, and so I do write about cases where, for instance, a father who's discovered by his genetic daughter deletes his, his test and wants no further communication. I write about a man who sends his daughter a separate case of a man who sends his genetic daughter a cease and desist letter through his lawyer, stop contacting me. Um, I write about um, siblings who say, uh, this science is bad and this never happened. You mean to tell us that our mother gave a child up, you know, before we were even born. Uh, we don't believe that about our late mother, and we want no further contact with you, and this isn't for real, um, even though the science is quite robust and it's very clear that these people are siblings. Um, so, you know, it, it can be incredibly painful for people depending on where they stand in the story, their relationship to the secret. Um, and so the answer to your question is, it depends. It depends whether this is a truth about you and your origins, um, or uh, if it's not and it conflicts with something that's incredibly sacred to you, uh, or with a secret that you have tried to long keep that maybe goes back to a period of terrible trauma and pain in your life, something you'd rather not revisit, something you never told anyone about. Uh, in that, those instances, people may not be so glad to know the truth or to have the truth be told. Mm. Let's take another break. Um, we're talking with Libby Copeland. Uh, she's a journalist, and uh, the latest book is fascinating. It's called The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. Uh, this year's 20th anniversary of the first uh, company that started uh, uh, taking uh, swab and uh, spit samples and uh, telling you uh, your, your your DNA information, and uh, it's, it's really taken off, and... Uh, uh, the unintended consequences, uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you don't know if you send your test in individually, and certainly uh, as a society and a culture, we, we're just in an uncharted territory. We're talking about this on the program today, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Master of Second Language Teaching Program, accepting applications throughout the year and offering evening classes to part- and full-time graduate students. Funding available on a competitive basis.
For more information, visit mslt.usu.edu. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. The Moth is coming to the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan, October 22nd, for a live Moth main stage show. Tickets and more information coming this summer to cacharts.org. And UPR will also be hosting an exclusive Moth reception directly before the performance for the UPR Producer Circle. You can secure an invite to the reception by becoming a UPR Producer Circle member today with a pledge of $1,200 at upr.org. That's just $100 a month. Thank you for your support. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Libby Copeland. She's a journalist whose uh, latest book is The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. Uh, so Libby Copeland, uh, we'll talk a little bit about privacy, and there, there are implications here, of course. Uh, you, uh, if you send in your, your sample, you, you don't want that information to get into the wrong hands, including medical information. Um, but uh, on a larger scale, you say we're, we're reaching a, a, I don't know, a critical mass or something where even if you never send your sample in, there, there might be information known about you. And so privacy becomes very important. Yeah, I mean, there's different kinds of privacy that we can talk about here. Um, one aspect of privacy is the one that I've been talking about, which is sort of, you know, um, familial privacy. And, and in fact, we've given up a lot of our privacy um, in recent years to the Internet and to um, social media. So in some ways, that ship has sailed. Uh, Americans um, don't seem to be all that concerned about privacy if they can get things for it. Um, and then, of course, you hear about breaches, and um, you know people do get incredibly upset about privacy. So um, there's this question of familial privacy, right? Like, like, how is it that if I never spit into a tube, somebody can still find me if I'm related to them and piece enough together about me by using social media to... Um, to, to know my name. Um, that's sort of one issue that's very interesting. And then the other issue is um, broader issues of privacy. And this you'll hear when you talk to people who say, you know, I'm never going to test because. Uh, and these are valid um, concerns that, um, you know, we simply haven't seen play out, so we don't know what it's going to look like in the future. Some of them are abstract, but they could play out at some point, or they might not, and it's hard to say. So, for instance, people are concerned about um, protection against genetic discrimination. So, for instance, could there be some future world in which an insurer could decline to insure you because they learned that you are at genetic risk of, uh, you know, getting a disease early on? Um, that could theoretically happen because the protections against genetic discrimination aren't, aren't perfect and there's some loopholes in them. Um, but I don't know of cases where it has happened yet. And then there's also concerns about um, things like what if your genetic data um, were to be were to be hacked or breached somehow? What if you, um, for instance, you test with a company and you examine their privacy policies and their consent policies, and you think that they're really solid, 
But 20 years down the line, 10 years down the line, that company gets sold to a different company. And now a different company owns your information. They have a different policy. These are all things that could happen um, that haven't happened. And I think some people look at it and they say there's just too many unknowns about how our genetic information might be used in the future for me to feel comfortable doing this, um, you know, on a, you know, engaging in commercial DNA testing in this way. Uh, you talked uh, briefly earlier in the hour about forensic genealogy, this phenomenon that's, uh, that's it's just kind of in its infancy. Uh, and this is related, right? We, we, on the one hand, we definitely want dangerous individuals to be locked up. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there, you know, there are some, perhaps some privacy issues here. Right. And so this was something that happened. It started in 2018 with the arrest of the Golden State Killer, and it was at once incredibly surprising to most Americans and not at all surprising to people who were in genetic genealogy. At least it was surprising insofar that it had happened, but they were not surprised that it could be done. Um, and that's because the techniques that were used to catch the Golden State Killer and that have been used in forensic genealogy since uh, have been used since about 2010 to help uh, adoptees find their genetic families and others. And so um, those principles um, had been used for all that time. Um, and then uh, the sort of the key difference was that um, law enforcement, with the help of a genetic genealogist, discovered a quasi-public um, database of, gene- of DNA information called JADMATCH, um, which we now are, uh, many of us have now heard that name. Um, and they were able to use a crime sample and put it in there and um, uncover the identity of the suspected um, uh, murderer and rapist um, known as the Golden State Killer um, through, using that, through using that database, which is quite small. Um, but they were able to do it nonetheless. So now there are, there are two databases now, um, that JEDmatch and another one called Family Tree DNA, which is the oldest DNA testing company. Um, and they have consent policies. Um, but when, uh, so, so you can either consent or you can either opt out or opt in, depending on the terms. Um, but when that happened, there was a lot of concern in the genetic genealogy community and among some um, some legal experts and privacy experts that that um, you know that this was um, conflicting with what people had consented to. Right? People test for recreational purposes to find out more about their own family histories. They didn't expect or um, anticipate that their information would be used to um, catch a criminal. Um, and some legal experts had concerns that this was violating some aspects of um, the Fourth Amendment. So um, that's been an issue. But on the other hand, um, law enforcement has primarily used these techniques to catch the worst of the worst, serial killers, cold cases going back really, really far. And um, the polling that I've seen from Americans um, in the studies that have been done have shown that most Americans are not concerned about this use of genetic genealogy and these quasi-public databases uh, in the most egregious cases. So if you're arresting someone for a terrible murder from the 1975, um, most Americans would say that sounds like a fine use to me. Mm. We just have about a minute left. I want to end with this, going back to something you said earlier, uh, you know, I asked you a question about uh, how do people work through getting information, which may be very unwelcome uh, or hard to work through. And uh, it sounds like you're you're pretty hopeful, uh, uh, speaking with culture and society at large, that, that a lot of the people you've been in touch with are are, are working through these issues in a, in a pretty good way. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about this idea that we're resilient and we adapt to changed and difficult circumstances in the context of coronavirus. And what I have found is that um, many of the people I interviewed are resilient about adapting to this new information and they incorporate it into their understanding of themselves. And like I said earlier, they're glad to know. Um, But what I think they do need is support, um, psychological help, um, you know, a good therapist. That's the sort of thing that it would be really helpful to talk to someone about. And as yet, there's not a whole ton of people who um, specialize in this particular kind of experience. So I think we're going to start seeing more of that. I think we're going to see more organizations crop up to help people in these situations. At the moment, if something happens to you, like you take a DNA test and discover something really profound and surprising, um, you're probably just going to go to Facebook and join one of the many Facebook groups that exist for people um, in these situations. And I think in the future, we're going to need to have more serious conversations around this to help people through their experiences and to normalize these experiences. Mm. Uh, because this is just going to keep coming. Uh, I think you this is just going to yeah. this is just going to keep coming. We're at yeah. millions of Americans and many millions more coming. Yeah. Well, we've reached the end of our hour. Fascinating. The the book well worth the read. And and the central uh, mystery is has as Libby Copeland said has a who done it like twist at the end. So uh, you'll want to read that central mystery as well. Uh, the lost family. How DNA testing is uh, pending. Who we are is the book. Uh, journalist Libby Copeland has been with us. LibbyCopeland.com is her website. Libby Copeland, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. This has been such a thrill. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. On the next On Being for Ramadan. It's a state of mind and it's an attempt to achieve God consciousness that carries on throughout the day. And at the end of the day, when you take that first sip of water, it is the sweetest thing in the world. The human experience of Islam's holiest month. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Tune in for On Being Sunday evenings at 5 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Living on Earth is next. Stay with us.